0: Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're going to talk about uh, shofar right now. Um, there are lots of halachas regarding the shofar. Um, one of them is very very sort of interesting, surprising. Uh, it's in, uh, in Gomorrah Rosh Hashanah in, in one of the Mishnas. So uh, I'll give you a historical context for it so that you don't think it's so esoteric or, or, or out there. There's actually a need to know this particular halacha. But the, the spiritual dimensions of this are also very fascinating. Um, Jews were hiding out in caves. Caves were were domiciles back then. You know, you could could find shelter and you could live if you needed to uh, back then. And, and, and they were large sort of cavernous things where you might crawl on your belly just to get in. But then all of a sudden it was like cavernous. Wow. So, so because, uh, especially during certain persecutions, all sorts of... Uh, Torah observance was outlawed things were done in hiding so you would have such a thing an occasion of blowing a chauffeur in a cave wow. and in that in that case you have all, ser- all, all sorts of questions that you'd have to answer like for instance have you fulfilled the mitzvah of hearing the chauffeur if what you've actually heard is the echo of the chauffeur that, that was in other words this is not just sort of a, an esoteric brain teaser this was like a, a, a real issue that had to be uh, addressed However, these things are endlessly deep. And so one would have to just sort of like explore that question. Have you fulfilled the mitzvah of hearing the echo of a shofar? So I'd like to give you my own sort of like understanding. By the way, the answer is no. You, you, are, you, you have not fulfilled the mitzvah. So, so why not? So why not? So the Chidush rim. Um, points out something, everybody knows that on Rosh Hashanah, certain historical things took place. And, and everybody also knows that when we talk about um, things that have happened in the past in Torah, we, we don't, um, we're not observing the anniversary of that thing. But rather, time is like a spiral, um, according to sort of the, the, the Torah notion. And as you go around the calendar, you actually re-enter that day itself. So, so that energy, whatever happened on that day, is still alive. And it's still sort of like streaming through time. Um, imagine sort of like a, a, a geyser shooting through time. And as you go around the calendar, you re-enter that geyser. You re-enter that divine flow. And so all the energy of all the things that happened that day, that, that's, what, that's what's going on. By the way, let's just pause to just consider something very interesting. About what does it mean to enter into the flow of Rosh Hashanah? So there's a fascinating thing, you don't find this anywhere else in, in the whole year, and all of Torah is such a such an interesting concept, which is, there's a question about how long Rosh Hashanah actually is. In other words, everybody knows it's two days, but is it two 24-hour days, or is it one 48-hour day? And believe it or not, there's actually very serious halakhic support for the idea that it's one 48-hour day, which in itself is like a, that's a, like a really out-there idea. But, but, but just on the, on the simplest level, by the way, we don't pask in that way. We say ultimately that we, we go according to the halacha that it's two 24-hour days. However, we have certain practices to make allowance for the fact that it might be one 48-hour day. And, and that, that practice that we make is that on the second day, we make sure to have a, a new fruit that we haven't eaten before. So just so you understand the logic of this. Because since we're going to be saying a shehechianu, a second shehechianu on the second day, right, which is the prayer for a new day, basically, reaching this new occasion. But if it's one 48-hour day, then... A second Shecheyanu isn't needed since you've already said the Shecheyanu for the whole holiday for the 148 hour day. So since we say, no, 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 let's just, the rabbi, The majority of rabbis are saying, no, it's two, 24 hour days. So on the second 24 hour day, you're going to make a second Shecheyanu, but what if that's an unnecessary blessing? So we, we, we don't want to use Hashem's name um, uh, inappropriately. That's why, like, I know when I first started becoming observant, I thought to myself, the more blessings I can say, the better. You know, that's that's that just just makes sense, right? And then I was very surprised to find out no 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 no. We're very careful when we say a blessing, and in fact the rule is, believe it or not, if you're in doubt whether to say a blessing, you don't say the blessing. And that's because we have year, we have tremendous reverence about uttering Hashem's name. So since we are making a shekhyanu with Hashem's name this second day we want some insurance so we have a new fruit that we haven't eaten for the for a year and we say okay if the shekhyanu doesn't go on the second day itself if that turns out to have been a mistake then it will go on this new fruit that we haven't eaten for a year and so that's that's but, but the reason why I'm bringing up this whole discussion is because as we go around the calendar, we're re-entering into this flow, this initial flow of Rosh Hashanah, where time itself, because the entire world is being created. You know, I heard Rabbi Tatz talk about, about this, that, that, you know, for instance, the, the, the first seven days of creation... Um because Rosh Hashanah is all about the creation of the world and the creation of human beings, right? The first seven days of creation is really talking about the um the evolution of the physical universe as we know it right now. And for instance, when we say like this year it's gonna be fifty seven seventy eight, that count starts from the creation of human beings. Right? A lot of people get confused. They say, No, 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 that's how old the world is. No, no, no. That, that count begins from the creation of human beings. Now, the Vilna and says that the first several days of creation could have been billions of years. And in fact, a student of the Ramban a thousand years ago was already talking about the age of the universe being something like either 11 or 14 billion years old. So, on the fourth day of creation, God hung the sun and the moon, in the sky. It was only on the seventh day of creation when creation is is complete, so to speak. The physical universe is complete. The, um, the world that Hashem had in mind wasn't complete yet. We're still very much participating in the finishing of the creation of the entire world. But the physical universe was set into place at the end of the seventh day. That's a very lengthy period where time is doing all sorts of wiggy things during that first seven days. So it makes sense that since you're entering to the flow of Rosh Hashanah, we have this unique type of question, is it a 48-hour day? Is it a 20, is it two 24-hour days? In other words, that's a very relevant question because formation is very much on a time-space level taking place. Okay, so now let's get back to this idea of the shofar. So we said, if you're in a cavern, if you're in a cave, and someone's blowing the shofar, and you're listening to the echo of the shofar, you are not, you have not fulfilled the mitzvah based on the sound of the echo of the shofar. So now let's get back to what the Chedusha Rum says. So he says, historically speaking, right, there are a lot of things that happened on Rosh Hashanah. One of the things that happened on Rosh Hashanah was that Yosef at Joseph, was freed from prison been in prison for years and years and years and years. Right? And, you know, I heard from Rabbi Shlomo in the name of the Ishbitzer Rebbe that it was on Rosh Hashanah that he prayed for the first time to get out. And he was released. Now, this is a very interesting idea because, you see... Prayers are are funny things. Because, and I'll explain what I mean by this. You can have too much faith in God. Now, I'll explain what I mean by that, because that sounds strange, like a strange statement. But let me explain to you. You see, Yosef was in prison, and he felt like, well, if I'm in prison, this is where God wants me to be. So I'll just stay in prison. And then at a certain point, he said to himself, you know what? Doesn't God want something more out of me than just to be sitting in prison all this time? And he prayed and he got out. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting because a person can almost psych themselves out with their belief in God by not asking for more. Because they can say, look, God knows best. God knows everything. This is what God's given me. And so this is what I'm just... This is what I have. Believe it or not, that's a bit of a curse. That attitude is a bit of a curse. And where do we see that? I'm using that word very uh, 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 pointedly and and deliberately, because it, when when I got married, Reb Shlomo, we had the the tremendous, you know. No, just 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 the gift of, of of Reb Shlomo marrying my wife and I, and one of the blessings that he gave us was, he said, never stop asking. And and where does he learn that from? Never stop asking. So so the, the Kutzker Rebbe and I saw someplace else from the Pshiska Rebbe, who's the Kutzker Rebbe's Rebbe. So, but from that school, right? See when when. Adam and Chava, and Rosh Hashanah is all about Adam and Chava, because that's when they're created on Rosh Hashanah. Remember, Rosh Hashanah is actually the sixth day of creation, not the first day of creation, because it's celebrating the creation of human beings. So, so when Adam and Chava ate from the Eitzhadas, from the Tree of Knowledge, certain sort of consequences came down. right? And what are the consequences that came down for the snake? So something very unusual. The snake was told that that he would eat from the dust of the earth. But what's strange about that is that wherever you go, there's dust on the earth. <laughs> so basically, the idea was that on some level he was being cursed to be a millionaire, or a multimillionaire, that wherever he would go, he would always have his needs and, and what to eat. So So they ask a question on this. What kind of curse is that? So the Kutzka Rebbe or the Pshiska Rebbe says back, you know what? Because he wouldn't have to ask anything from God. That's the curse. In other words, that he wouldn't be in this active relationship with God. Because God basically said, Here, here's what you need, take it, go. And so the, the, the greatest blessing, we think the bless, greatest blessing is to have everything that we need. And you know what? We should be blessed with everything that we need. But there's a higher blessing than that, which is that never stop asking. That to be in a constant relationship with God, that's an even greater blessing. And you can have the two of them existing together. You can have... that's That's why we were being blessed, never stop asking. Because that way you can have everything that you need, and yet you can still be in an active relationship with God. So Rabbi Freeman said something so beautiful. In the name of the Priyets Chaim, who is, you know, the, the top, the top top student of the Ari, and and it was a kavanah, some, a, 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 a holy a holy thing to to have in mind um, for for as as one gets closer to Rosh Hashanah, that one should really have their 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 smallness in mind, right? That they're basically that they're basically nothing. Now, you might say. Okay. Now, when does the inspiring part of that thought kick in? <laughs> you know what I mean, it's like, okay, okay, so nothing. Okay, what's uh, that? Was the, that's the beautiful thing? Okay, I can get that from someplace else. So here, here's the amazing part of that, though, which is that since God is infinite, the closer you get to the infinite, the more you realize how small you are. In other words that sense of nothingness is actually coming from a place of extreme closeness. Do you understand? So like for instance, just to give you a a very sort of meat and potatoes visualization, if I were to see um, the uh, Empire State Building from a few miles away, I could probably put my thumb and my forefinger together and it would look, and this would be an accurate measure according to my eye, it would look about maybe four inches tall. Right? And yet when I get closer and closer and I'm standing like right at the Empire State Building at all, I look up, I can't even see the top. I'm, all of a sudden I've gone from being multiples in terms of the what I perceive to be the size of it, to being like a grain of sand next to it. But that comes from actually being close to it. So, in Rosh Hashanah, we get this awesome schluss, this awesome merit of being so close to God. But with that comes an appreciation of, you know, that we're this, this like tiny piece. But, as we've said before, and I think this is such an important thought, there are levels to infinity. See, a lot of people think that, like, like, like I always say, when I was a little kid, if you asked me what's infinite, I would tell you, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and it keeps on going. And that's the definition of infinity. That's what, that's what I would have told you, right? And I would have felt pretty good about that answer. And then I learned that there's an infinite number of numbers. There are infinite numbers between 1 and 2. Because <laughs> there are these irregular numbers that repeat endlessly. So that, And, and that's, that's also infinite. So in other words, you have levels of infinity. And you can have infinities within infinities. So when 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 we talk about our relationship with God, remember, God has put a piece of himself inside of us. And that means that's that's one level of, of, of infinite. But then you've got a greater infinity, which is God himself. And he's even beyond that. Because he's more than that. Because remember, you know, it's kind of funny. Like, 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 I used to think that if I wanted to give the most exalted description of God, it would be that God is infinite. But if you're already putting a definition on on God, that's putting parameters on God, which means He's beyond infinite. And even that is words. (laughs) But in other words, what I'm trying to say is is that when you're assessing your own nothingness, your own nothingness is also infinite. (laughs) There's just levels of infinity. So, so we still haven't gotten to the Chedush Rim. So, one of the one of the events that happens on Rosh Hashanah is Yosef Atsari gets out of prison. And we're still trying to answer the question, what does it mean that you can't fulfill the mitzvah by hearing the echo of the shofar? Right? We're still on that question. So, so, Yosef prays. And all of us have to pray also. All of us can't fall into this trap of being... So to speak, too religious, where we go, God knows what he's doing, God's going to do what he's doing, and I'm just kind of doing my part, which is kind of minding my own business, and I'll just show up for the prayers, kind of do what I'm told to do, and hopefully a blessing will come down. Yeah, uh, a person's got to be more active than that.
1: Right.
0: You know, it, 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 it requires more. We're, we're partners with God. We're partners with God. Okay? So... So the Khadushairim, now we can finally say it, says that, you know what it is, when you blow the shofar, you know what's happening? And if you think about it, it's, it's really very beautiful. Your insides, because you're taking from your insides, when you blow, you're taking from your insides, your insides are becoming manifest on the outside. In other words, your insides, your innermost aspects are becoming revealed. And now there is a an awareness of self that's taking place. If you ask anyone any any school child, what do we do on Rosh Hashanah? They'll all tell you the same thing. Oh, on Rosh Hashanah we make God king. On Rosh Hashanah we make God king. Right? Okay. So there's something that's been in the news the last bunch of years, and I'm I'm not trying to be funny by bringing this up. I'm I'm, I'm being very serious. There's it, it's an issue in U.S. politics anyway, um, called voter fraud. V- voter fraud, um, and their campaigns. Should a person have to show up with um, proper ID when they vote, or can they just say um, John Smith and then they look down the 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 uh, the people who are registered in the district, and they say, John Smith, and, you, and they say, what address are you? And you say, um, you know, Tulane Road, and they go, yeah, John Smith, Tulane Road. Okay, go, go and vote. Here's your ballot. That, that's how it works now. And there have been campaigns over the years, and I'm, believe me, I'm not advocating either way. I'm just bringing this to understand chauffeur and Rosh Hashanah. That say, no, 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 you actually should show up with an ID because why can't anyone say they're John Smith from Tulane Road and then they've stolen your vote? There's certainly a logic to it, but that's also tied up in all sorts of politics. If you want to get into why this is such a contentious issue in America, because they say a lot of people don't have this ID and basically this is really just a sneaky way to disenfranchise part of the electorate who are poor, and then you're getting the poor people that they can't vote, and that's really what's behind this whole thing. You're not concerned with voter fraud at all. Okay, so those are the two sides of the political issue, but let's go a little bit deeper. The idea is, if you actually, just on the simplest level in terms of the law, if you actually want to vote for the person, you have to be who you say you are. (laughs) That's the point. If you want to actually cast a legitimate kosher vote, you have to be who you say you are. So now let's get back to the chauffeur. Let's get back to this idea of the echo. Let's get back to the idea of Yosef, that your insides are being revealed. Are we who we think we are? If the main job of Rosh Hashanah is making God king, voting, so to speak, for God, yes, that's my choice. I'm acknowledging that God actually, that this entire world is inside God. That God is the, the only power. Not my God is stronger than your God. Or my religion is better than your religion. That's not Judaism's approach at all. Torah says there is only one power. So only one power. That's it. Period. End. That's Hashem. That's the creator of heaven and earth. That's it. If you want to make that acknowledgement on Rosh Hashanah, if you want to make that acknowledgement, you have to be you while you're making that acknowledgement. (laughs) It really has to be you. It can't be a fraudulent representation of yourself. That's what an echo is. An echo isn't the real thing. <laughs> an echo is a, an approximation, a close approximation. But if, if it's an echo of you, in other words, if you think that you're actually someone else, and you're going through life actually thinking that you're someone else, and you try to show up on Rosh Hashanah and vote in that alternative identity, it doesn't work. In order to make God king, you have to be you casting your own vote. So, who are you? Who are you? So we said, you are a piece of God. (laughs) Who's God? Right? Well, I mean, that's a big question, right? That's a big question. One of my favorite stories, I tell it a lot of times, you know. It's really a a Yom Kippur story, but it's, you know, this whole period, it's all these ten days are like all, they're all so exalted from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah, by the way, is a very different holiday than Yom Kippur. But there's a lot of overlap, too. So this is a Yom Kippur story. So Reb Lebla Eger, who is like a, a prince, a prince of Israel, a prince of Torah, you know, he was from this exalted Torah family of old geniuses. Rabbi Kiva Eger, who is, you know, one of the greatest Talmudic scholars of all time, was his grandfather. His father, Rabbi Shlomo Eger, was also very, very great. And his, um, his commentaries are included in, in, in Great's farm. And then you have Rabbi Rabbi Labela Eger, who was their grandson. They were, they were wealthy, they were geniuses, they were like really was like a prince, a prince of a prince of Israel. And he was from a family that was very anti-Hasidic. You know? They had their reasons. They felt, you know, anyway, that's a whole historical lesson in itself. We'll say that. But wouldn't you know it, Reb Leble Eger decided that he wanted to become chassidic, And he went to learn with the Kotzka Rebbe. And uh, when he showed up in Kutsk he showed up in, you know, like how he dressed. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't conceited, but, you know, he had nice clothing. <laughs> so, well, why wouldn't he? There's no mitzvah to dress in rags. And he showed up in in, like his finery, and they they stripped him of it. They were like, you're going to walk around in Kutsk with these clothes? Like, who are you fooling? You know, in Kutsk, everything was for real. People didn't flatter each other. It was all about emmes. Everything was just bare bones, just an x-ray of the truth. And that's what it was. So, he hadn't been there for so long. And he's sitting, it's, they just stop in Kol Nidre, it's Yom Kippur night. And he hears two of the people talking. And, you know, he's staying and he's learning in the base medrash, he's learning Torah, even after the prayers are done. It's Yom Kippur night. You know. And he hears two people talking, and one says to the other, ah, can you believe it? Can you believe it? We forgot to make Kiddush. It's Yom Kippur, and we forgot to make Kiddish. Now, you don't eat or drink on Yom Kippur. There is no Kiddish on Yom Kippur, you know? Like, everybody knows that. So Reb Lee Lager is, like, learning, and he's, like, with his one year, he's hearing to this, this conversation, like, these two people, and they go, oh, I can't, you're right, we didn't make Kiddish." So they they walk over, and Reb Leib Lager like, jumping out of his skin like, what's going on? What, what, what is this place, right? And they reach into a cabinet and they take out a kiddush cup. And, and Reb Label Eger says, stop! And they say, why should we stop? He says, you, you can't make kiddush today! They say, why not? He says, it's Yom Kippur! They say, So, who says we can't make Kiddush on Yom Kippur? And he says, Hashem! And then they look at him and they say, Who's Hashem? And he doesn't know what to say. And they look at him in the eye and they say, Labela, you've been in Kutsk this long and you don't know who Hashem is? They put down the Kiddush cup and they walk away. The whole thing was a setup. The whole thing was a setup. So who's Hashem? We're voting for Hashem. Who's Hashem? So we already said He's beyond, 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 beyond. And yet, at the same time, He's so close. I can't answer this question myself, but I can give you a couple of things. So the Kedusha Arim points out something that I never heard before. I thought it was, like you hear this and you go, how how did I get to this point in my life and I never heard this? He says that the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah, the Aseris Yumei Tshuva, as it's called, the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, these correlate with the Aseris Adibros, the Ten Commandments when you hear that you go, oh, yeah, of course of course those correlate but how does it work exactly? So think about it think about how awesome this is let's just do the first two days okay? and the first two commandments we said Rosh Hashanah is all about making Hashem king what's the, what's the first commandment? Anoche Hashem Elokecha I'm God <laughs> okay, that's great What about the, what, what about the second day? There's no other power other than me. (laughs) Isn't that Rosh Hashanah? And by the way, those first two commandments were said by God himself. So who's God? I'd be a fool to try to put it in one sentence, right? But I can tell you when God was speaking of himself, these were the two descriptions that he gave. I exist, and there's nothing other than me, says God. So, so now you want to cast your vote, right? You don't want to be an echo. You don't want to be a fraudulent representation of yourself. You actually want to be you. So if you are Think that you're independent of God, well, does that sync with what, how God describes Himself? See, one of the things in, in all the years of these talks, I think one of the main things that I've been trying to express all these years, and I just try to do it over and over again in different ways, is that anyone, so many people think that God is an idea inside my head and I'm a good guy. And what I'm doing by being a good guy is being true to this idea inside of my head. That's a very egocentric ecosystem. Essentially, so it's all about you then, right? I thought it was about God. Oh, no, no, no. One of my religious thoughts inside my head is that it shouldn't be about me. Oh, but that's a subset of it being all about you right, right, exactly so as a subset of it being all about you, it's not all about you, because you want to be a good guy, right however, <laughs> it doesn't work however, it doesn't work it doesn't work yeah so that it, it, it's, it's part Yitzhah it's part Ignorance. It's part ignorance because no one ever told anyone otherwise. And it's a big idea. When you hear it, it sounds kind of basic and simple. That God exists in reality outside you, and the only reality is God. And you exist within that reality. That, that's, that, that, that's what it is. That's a very basic idea that most people just have never heard. They just don't know it. They're just trying to be good people. But, but as an extension of them just trying to be good people, they're creating themselves as, setting themselves as independent entities other than God. So the first thing that we have to do if we really want to have a meaningful Rosh Hashanah, if we really want to make God king, is to break down this illusion inside of our heads. That, that God is an idea inside my head as opposed to the reality that I'm dwelling within. And everything follows from that. Everything follows from that. Everything follows from that. Because then all of a sudden, I mean, it's the most liberating thought in the entire world. You know, one of the, one of the things that I, I just think plagues every single person in this world is this notion of success. Because we've allowed once, once I'm me and once I'm an independent entity, then success, at least in the Western standard, can basically only be measured one way, and that's with dollar signs. And then when you realize that that that's like this tyrannical false construct and that I'm as successful as I am a harmonious extension of the ultimate reality then, then I can fly I can fly through life I can soar Because I realize that this whole thing is not just about me anymore. I'm just this, like this amazing creature swimming around in this divine ecosystem. And God has given me all these gifts. He's loaded me with jewels. He's loaded me with Torah. He's loaded me with mitzvahs. And we're just like constructing this vast, epic, epic, epic endeavor. You know, people want to know, how come the Mashiach is taking so long Do you know what the answer is? The answer is because this project is so epic. (laughs) It's beyond epic. If you understand the scale of it, I mean, you look at a building going up in the neighborhood and it's like, ah, that seems to be taking a long time. But we're constructing the entire universe. And by the way, it's not a joke, it's, it's for real. And I'll give you another level of the shofar. We know that there are 10 spheres. We know that there are 10 spheron. But we also know that each sphera contains all the other spheras. Which means that really, there's a hundred levels. There's a hundred levels. Now isn't it interesting on Rosh Hashanah, which is talking about making God king, and it's talking about the creation of the universe, isn't it interesting that we blow a hundred chofer blasts, and there are a hundred levels to the ten sphira? Because literally, we're constructing the entire thing through God, and God has asked us to be partners with Him on this. I mean, just to make it, just to, just to make it like very real. And this is in every field. It's certainly true in my field. Let's say you have a script. And you send it out. And somehow, you get it to a top person, somehow. And the top person goes, yeah, let's do it, man. And you're like, you want to be in business with me? (laughs) We we get to work together? And this is in every field, right? God wants to work with you. (laughs) Right? Like, I used to, like, laugh to myself. People think that the they 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 like they're confounded by this notion god wrote the torah like god like that's the least of it that god can write a book god invented a world and then within that world invented james joyce and william shakespeare <laughs> you think god himself can't write a book i mean that's the least of it it's the least of it See, once you posit an omnipotent God, there is nothing that he can't do. So the idea that, you know, like, well, really? Like, how does that work exactly? But when you start from the standpoint of an omnipotent God, an all-powerful God, there is nothing God can't do. It's just a question of whether he wants to do it or not. And so one of the things that God wants to do and set out to do from the very beginning of creation itself is to create a perfect world. And God, who is perfect, will not fail. <laughs> do you understand that? It's like, we're rooting for you, God. It's been, it's been thousands of years. You can do it, God. And God is just like smiling and laughing. Oh, thank you for your confidence in me. <laughs> um, Thank you for believing that I, who created your ability to actually say that to me, (laughs) believe that I can do it. God is not going to fail. Right? The world will be perfect. But he wants us to play a role in achieving that perfection. Which means... There's going to be stuff that you want to do, and guess what? You're not allowed to do it. I'm sorry to give you the news. (laughs) I'm really sorry. Sorry it had to come from me. (laughs) But that's got to be okay. (laughs) That's got to be okay it's got to be okay because in the vastness and the glory of all of this you have to understand that part of what we're trying to transact is as it says in the psalm so beautifully so succinctly swemira the ase tov turn from bad and do good you're going to have to utilize both parts of your dynamisms right one is positive movement, one is restraint. You're going to have to exercise restraint, which means not being able to do what you wanna do. And you're going to have to do forward movement, which means doing stuff that you don't necessarily wanna do. But that, that is what makes the whole engine like just churn and chug and just absolutely just start to run seamlessly and frictionlessly. And it's a rhythm. You know, we talked about it last week, but it's, it's just so important. There's a, a, a cluster of what we call klalas, or they're translated as curses, or let's say consequences that we read before Rosh Hashanah. And then after that whole chunk, it says, and why are these things happening? And Hashem says, because when things were good and I gave good to you, you weren't happy. And so so most people understand that to mean the following, that that God says, I gave you good stuff and you weren't happy? Now I'm really going to get you, (laughs) you know? (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to zap you for that. Okay, so, so that's not what it means. So so, so the Chidusha Arim brings in the name of the Pshiska Rebbe, who brings in the name of the Sassover Rebbe, the following explanation, which when you hear this, you go, oh, okay, now I get it, now I get it. It's not that, oh, because you weren't happy, now I'm going to zap you. Not that, not that. It's, you see, when a person's not happy, they look for pleasure in forbidden places. That, that's, that's what it is. That's what it is. See, my, my father, who was a therapist, Oliver used to say, if you have, and he did a lot of couples therapy, if you, if you have a big, satisfying dinner at a restaurant, do you walk out of the restaurant and go, now where can I get a sandwich? Do you, say, you don't say that, because you don't, you don't have a need for it. So the Rebbe explains that, that if we if if we're happy, if we're happy, we're not looking for our pleasure in places where we shouldn't be looking for it. Which means that we have to cultivate a relationship with God where we find pleasure with God. Where that, that's a dynamic, satisfying relationship. Doesn't mean that they're not going to be challenges still. There are always challenges. That's the nature of life. But we won't be running to the wrong places because we're happy. So to understand the the Pasuk again, because you weren't happy, that's why this is happening. So what it means is there's an extra step in there. Because you weren't happy, you ran and did all these other things in order to find happiness and that's why these things are happening. So what that means is joy brings protection. Joy is like a shmier. Joy is like, like this force field around you. Yeah. When you have joy, then you're not running to all these other places. So, so, so we, have to, we have to find joy in our relationship with God. Yeah. And I just mentioned one last thing, just we'll wrap it up. In last week's Parsha, that, that begins with us bringing our fruit. You take your first fruit and you bring it to the base of Migdash. And um, we mentioned that, that, that that's one of the things that means is you've got to feel good about yourself. You know, that's one of the ways of having pleasure and, and being in a state of joy, is that when you do something good, that you feel good about it, right? So gather up all the fruits, which is like all the things that you did over the year. Think about, catalog, what you did, what you did. You put it in a basket and you bring it to the Holy Temple. Now remember, the Holy Temple in Hebrew, that means, that's the way we say that, is Beis HaMikdash. And the Jikovah Rebbe says, Beis HaMikdash, if you do the math, Beis HaMikdash is the same number as Rosh Hashanah. So you take all your good deeds, you put it in a basket, and you bring it to Rosh Hashanah. All right? And then you say what's called the Vidui. Vidui is translated as confession. Right? We're going to do a lot of Vidui these, these next couple of weeks. Okay. So vidui is basically your basic vidui stances, you know, you're kind of a little bit bent over and you're kind of pounding your chest with each of the wrongdoing and you go down a laundry list of what you did wrong and you're trying to uproot those things. By the way, and, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to be humorous, I'm being serious, if you, if you know anything about gourmet cooking, I and mean, you see like uh, there are a lot of food shows right now, so you, you, if you watch those you'll have seen this. One of the things that people do with um, with a piece of meat is they tenderize the meat, so that way it's softer. It's it's just it's it absorbs the flavor of the ingredients that you're cooking with it more and everything like that. And they have these like hammers basically that they that they pound the meat with in order to make it more tender, right, and more absorbent. So when when the prophets talk about a person's heart they say you know why a person does things wrong because their heart's like stone <laughs> their heart's too hard and 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 the idea is and this is from the words of the prophet they say that god is going to take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh so in other words that's when we're when we're when we're Pounding our chest, the idea is that we're trying to tenderize our heart. That's what it is. We're trying to turn our heart of stone into a heart of flesh so that we can be more compassionate so that we're not just saying, no, 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 no. Find someone else. I can't do that. I can't do that. Ah, you're looking at the wrong place. Right? Okay. So when we bring the fruit, there's a vidui that we send. But here's the, here's the funny part of it. It's a very funny very strange confession that we make. It's not, I did this wrong and I did this wrong, which is every other vidui. They're kind of one and the same. This vidui is all the things that I was supposed to do, I'm telling you that I did those things that I was supposed to do. That that these fruit are like basically, we're going down the checklist, all the things that make this a proper offering, I hit all those marks, and I'm just telling you, I'm going down the list. I hid all the things that I was supposed to do. So Rav Saloveitchik says something beautiful. He says that a person also has to be able to confess what they did right. (laughs) See, it's kind of a funny use of the word confess. Because usually we exclusively use the word confess for what we did wrong. But you see, there are a lot of people, and this is maybe most of us, who are great at beating ourselves up over what we do wrong, but not so good about confessing when we do something right. But if you want to bring the proper offering, you also have to be able to confess what you're doing right. Because that's part of, and again, let's go back to the chauffeur Blast, which is bringing out the true inside so that the real you is voting for God. If you want the real you to stand before you, the real you is also doing things right. And you have to be able to recognize that too. Because if you're only saying, I'm the guy who does things wrong, then you're not allowed to vote. Or your vote is just voter fraud. It's just another form of voter fraud. If you're not also acknowledging what you do right. So, so very appropriately, we'll just end on this. Very appropriately, the last word that we read Shabbos morning, from uh, you know the end of Parshas Veilech, is the word Tumam. means uh, it means to, to 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 conclude, right? That's how it's uh, translated. Moshe spoke the words of this song into the ears of the ears of the entire congregation of Israel until their conclusion. So. First of all, how beautiful is it that the Torah is being called a song? By the way, I want to, I don't know, I'm, I'm probably not the first person to come up with this idea, but I don't think I heard it from anyone, so I'm putting it out there in case anyone wants to do this. Any of you mu- musicians out there, would be maybe awesome, an awesome experiment. You know, just like every letter of the Aleph Beis, in other words, Moshe Rabbeinu right here is calling the Torah a song. What if you went down the scale, right? or up the scale of music. And just like we assign numbers to different letters, what if we assigned a, a musical note, according to the scale, to each of the letters? Wow. Right? And what would it be like to play the Torah like a song? <laughs> like, could you imagine, like, what is wow. and maybe multiple letters could have the same notes because if there's a scale of seven or whatever, then, but I, I would like to hear what the tour sounds like as a wow. song, assigning it that way. How would you like to hear what your name sounds like? Right? would you like to hear your name played on a guitar or violin or something like that? Or a saxophone? Wow. <laughs> that would be wild, right? Or orchestrated like yeah, like how about that? That's by the way, if anyone wants to make a business out of that, <laughs> make me make me your partner yeah. and you can sell to people, you know, here's your your name as a song, right? Okay. Um, Torah on iTunes.com. Hit the contact button. (laughs) Cut me in. (laughs) But but anyway, so I heard Rabbi uh, Aaron say very beautifully, "God is the singer and we are the song." Right. And and the whole world is made out of Torah and we're made out of Torah. Right. We have six hundred and thirteen different sinews and organs, and these correlate with the mitzvahs. So, so, so. So the Chedush HaRam says something very beautiful. And by the way, again, this word Tumam, that Moshe read the words of this song into the ears of the entire congregation of Israel until their conclusion. Isn't that beautiful that the last word that we read on Shabbos, the end of the full Parsha that we read, is the word conclusion. Like it's also the conclusion of the year, right? And the, the word conclusion is is... Is, is the last word that we read. It's amazing. But anyway, here's what the Hadusha Room says. No, Moshe's reading it until, Tumamot means complete, right? Until we are complete. In other words, the Torah is, is, is being read and it's working on us until we are complete. Do you understand? That we find our tikkun, we find our fixing, we find our fullness and our, our, the full realization of ourselves through the Torah. And we bring that to Rosh Hashanah. And that complete aspect of ourselves. And with that aspect of ourselves, we vote for God and we make God king. Amen. Now for some questions and answers. So, good
1: question. I was, uh, I was wrapping my film uh, this morning, yeah. and I noticed uh, that it felt like I was wrapping a serpent around my arm. And
0: it felt like there was a rectif- yeah. rectification yeah. of serpent Beautiful. energy. Beautiful. Love it. So love it. I was going to ask you, I love also, it.
1: I also, though, I also love snakes in general. Yeah. I feel really bad because I feel like the Torah kind of, like, is always, like, I don't know, giving the snake, I'm like, <laughs> sure I the yeah. I wonder if there's any, like,
0: Torahs that uplift the snake or some way to... Yeah, know. well, the snake, remember, remember, it says, it says evil works for good, right? We don't have the concept of two powers. And God, like, the 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 Tov gives a mashal. There's a king who has a, a son, and the son lives in the palace. And the son's a good, he's a good son, but the king doesn't really know just exactly what the true kind of like um, ethical ethical level of the son is, basically, because the son lives in the palace, so the son is going to do good things, because he's before the king. So what the king does is, he, he, he sets the son up in a distant province. Okay, now all of a sudden, there's this illusion of independence, this illusion of privacy, everything like this, like, Okay. Now we're going to see who the son really is. And he he hires a a, a harlot, the king, to try to seduce the son. And so the harlot is seducing the son. And all the while the harlot is saying, please don't say yes. Please don't say yes. Please don't say yes. Right? Because the harlot is working for the king. And the harlot also knows that the king wants to have pride in the success of the son. So, the, the, the greatest success is for the harlot to fail, right? So, this is our Zahara. This is evil in this world. Evil doesn't want to succeed. Evil knows that it works for God. Evil is here to test us. And evil wants to fail, right? So, that's the snake. The snake energy is the yetsahara So, in other words, it gives us an opportunity. Like, it says that when the sudden, when the this Tempter comes to us. If we say yes to it, it rips its clothes and cries. And if we say no to it, it jumps up and dances. So, so the glory of the snake is our ability to say no to it. Then it then it succeeds. I remember I was talking to a guy one time, and he he told me he's working out in this club, and he loves looking at all the all the women, you know, you know, in the club. You know? He didn't say it that way, but that that is kind of what he was saying. And and then he said to me, Do you and and I'm sure it's it. It, because god God is putting all these people in front of me. So I'm supposed to look. And I said, Well what if God's putting them in front of you for you not to look? Right? So that's 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 how we uplift the snake by by, by, not, by not participating. And then that's the victory for the snake. Re- remember, um, one of the most far-out gematrias is that snake and Mashiach are the same number. And, and the idea was that, remember, we were put into the Garden of Eden not to just bliss out, we were put into the Garden of Eden To work and guard the garden. In other words, from the very outset, this entire world was a work project. From the beginning, we had something to do from the beginning. Most people think we were put into the Garden of Eden in this cosmic spa to bliss out and we blew it. Mm -hmm. Right? That's not it. That's not it. We were there to do a job and we blew it. Very, very big difference. Very big difference. We were there to work from the outset. So, the idea is that the snake was that thing that, basically, we had to harness that energy. We had to master that energy. And had we mastered that energy there and then, that would have been Mashiach. That's why snake and Mashiach are the same number. If we had harnessed that energy, then we would have basically completed our work. So, the idea when you're wrapping tefillin, if you want to have this kavana of it being the snake... The arm to fill in is basically going on command of the body. And the head to fill in is going on command of your thoughts. Right? So the idea is that as you're wrapping the snake, so to speak, what you're doing is you are controlling that energy, it is not controlling you.
1: See if I can make this a concise two part. Um, you talked about. The not being happy and then reaching for false sources of it. The first thought is, well, why not just do this? The you know the 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 deeply satisfying happiness version instead of reaching for the false comforts. Um, I presume the answer to that is because that's more challenging to do. Basically.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. And, and
0: a person has to want to do it. And a person has to know to do it. Right. So there's like a lot of levels. I mean, a lot of... Um, it says in Pirkei Cabos that a bore, mm-hmm. A boar is an unlearned person. A mm-hmm. boar cannot be pious. Mm-hmm. In other words, an uneducated person can't reach the higher levels of spirituality because they haven't been taught mm-hmm. what the, the do's and don'ts, just the, the, just the basics. You know, one of the things that that we're really trying to correct, and it's it's getting a lot, lot better. That's the good news. It's getting a lot, lot better. But we have a lot of work still to do is there's such a profound lack of education, you know, especially in our world. People just don't know the basics. They don't know the basics. And, um, you know, Art Scroll has, has helped so much in terms of, like, translating these you know, centuries or thousands of year old treasures, jewels, our heritage is being returned to people who don't know how to read a a word of Hebrew can now dive in and become actual Torah scholars, believe it or not, you know? So, so, um, so yeah, it's not just that it's hard to do. People don't even begin to know to do
1: it. Right. And then, building on this, this is a question about you, so you may not want to answer it, but I've heard you talk couple of times about the American version of success and then on top of that, right. the Hollywood version of success right. and how that's secondary at best. Um, and yes. you have been very successful in that way. And I don't think it's just about money, by the way. I think it's also prestige and also reaching a certain level of accomplishment that not everybody does. You have achieved that. So since it's so secondary, what does it mean to you? Does it mean nothing? Or is it just, yeah, that's nice, or what does it mean to you? Well,
0: that's, yeah, I'll have to really think about that question. I mean, um, you know, there's a a side of me that's just been sort of conditioned from birth to run after Mm it. And I think that part of me is still an automatic pilot from from that, honestly. Mm -hmm. And it's very deeply ingrained within me just to, just still run after it on some level, you know, to be honest. You know? But isn't
1: it also kind yeah. of fun and cool, even if it's not the highest, highest level?
0: Um, you know, yes, but I'll tell you a story, and of course, you know, I, I'm like anyone else in that respect, if, if, if I have the choice between paying my bills or not paying my bills, I very much want to pay my bills, believe me, I really do. And I have to work in order to do that. And then if I'm gonna work in order to do that, if I have a choice of working uh, you know in in, in in the thing that I, I know best and enjoy the most, then I very much want to work in that field, you know, which in this case is writing. So yes to that also. And then if I have a choice between working on a show that no one's ever heard of or people, you know, mock, or being on a show that people sort of like, wow, that's such a great show, I love that show so much. I definitely want to work on that show. So I'm being totally honest. Having said all that though, having said all that, um, I do remember the be- toward the beginning of my career, someone had gone to some Writers' Guild event, and someone was speaking there, and he was an older person who was like a longtime veteran of of uh, of the industry, and uh, I guess was successful in that he had worked for probably decades, this guy. And he was on this show that was actually the type of show that that sort of us up-and-coming comedy writers who you know wanted to do edgy, more sort of conceptual comedy would mock, right? Like if if you needed a punchline for like what was considered a really bad show, that was the show that he worked on. And so he was speaking, you know, before an audience at the Writers Guild, and he said that the definition of success is being home for dinner. With your family. <laughs> and I remember, I because a lot of these shows work very late hours, and you hardly ever see your family. And I remember thinking, that guy is the ultimate hack. <laughs> that is the definition of being a hack. Right? He, he doesn't care at all about the product. He wants to be home with his family at six o'clock, and he calls that success. Like, That was my reaction as a youth. (laughs) As an older person. (laughs) Especially someone who's learned Torah over the years. Man, I get what he's talking about. I get what he's talking about. I sure do. I sure do. Because it's not just that I'm gonna bail on the show even though we could have worked for another couple of hours getting better jokes, getting a more interesting storyline and something like that. But my understanding, in my present state of what he's saying is, you know what, I'm paying my bills. We're making, we're making the product that we said that we were going to make, and there's a larger success, which is being with my family and raising my kids. and And these two things are working together, and that's what I call success. And so you know, you know, there's that famous uh, Mark Twain quote, which is that I was shocked. When I came back from being in college, how intelligent my parents had become, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but you know, a lot of times what we imagine to be ignorance around us, when we learn a little bit more, we look at it again and we go, "Oh, that, those guys are pretty smart, actually. I didn't realize what they were thinking about," you know. So, so that's so so that's another thing. Now, am I saying that? Therefore, something less status-y is, um, is less important to me as I get older, or perhaps it's because I have this award or that award, and so um, it's a little bit unfair because I'm coming from the standpoint of having those awards and then sort of poo-pooing them and saying, oh, they're not necessary. So these are deeper questions. I have to struggle with the answers to that more. you know glad to help. Yeah. 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 Do one more, yeah. It's just, um, when you said that Yosef was uh, trusting Hashem all the time, and then suddenly he went like, "Okay, he he reached out, and he asked." <coughs> he me, thought maybe, maybe God wants something more than me than than just sitting in prison my whole life, you know? So, so that that hit a note on me because that's the one thing I've been working on this year. I think, like, when I'm thinking about things that I've been working on, one of them is this thing about having a situation let's say that's 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 not changing and trying and then accepting and saying, OK, Hashem, I trust you, there's a reason for this and you know that balance of not doing and accepting. Right. And it's not so simple. Yeah. Yeah, so the basically here's the thing and, and again to use that fancy word, it's a dialectic which means basically two opposites are, are simultaneously true. And Judaism is a very sophisticated path, and you have to balance a tremendous number of dialectics in order to move forward. That That's just the truth of it. But that really is the truth of it, because if you just think that everything is simple and cut and dry and just do this or do that, but in order to do this, sometimes you have to do the opposite of doing that in order to be doing that. You, you, you understand? So it's... It's like, for instance, the, the example that I always like to give to just, just so you're following what I'm saying is that if your grandmother gives you chicken soup and it's terrible, and she asks you how it is, there is only one answer to that question, which is that it's delicious. And you say, but I want to be a truthful person. So I have to tell her that she made lousy chicken soup. That person is an idiot. There's a, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a, terminology in the Talmud called a righteous fool. That person is a righteous fool. Because they're saying, I prize honesty. But but if you understand it on a deeper level, your grandmother isn't asking you if you like the chicken soup. When she asks you, do you like the chicken soup? She's asking you, do you love me? And the answer is, yes, of course I love you. And the way you answer that in the context of the discussion is, the chicken soup is delicious. So in other words, you are being a truthful person by telling a lie at that moment. So sometimes you're, the way to do something is the opposite of what you would normally do, but that counts as doing it. It's This is when we get into, it's a more sophisticated thing. It's, it's called a dialectic. So to return back to what you're saying, a person has to trust in God and everything like that, and they have to say, whatever God has given me is enough That's one side, and the other side is you have to constantly ask for more, and you have to constantly strive. And you say, well, how can I be striving and asking for more if I'm working on being satisfied with what I have? And the answer is, it's a dialectic.